in Matthew chapter 6, actually 5, 6, and 7, is the theme, living life against the flow. Now, in our verses this morning, you're going to see uh, how much against the flow it is. Look at verse 16. Moreover, when you fast, great message before lunch, isn't it? Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Sometimes we come to a text of Scripture and we wonder, what relevance does this have in my life now? And a a text like this, what would fasting have to do with me? Apart from dieting in our country, we don't think a whole lot about fasting. We love food. In fact, we'll even name cities after food. Here's a couple of examples. There's a town in Florida known as Two Egg, Florida. There's also Bacon in Delaware. There's a town called Pancake, Texas. There's Toast, North Carolina. There's even Jelly here in California. Hot Coffee, Mississippi. You got a complete breakfast right there. And I guess if you want to top it off with orange juice, well, we have, including our own, eight counties called Orange County. The Bible mentions fasting about 60 different times. That's a lot of places. In fact, that's more times than important subjects like baptism or taking the Lord's Supper. It's mentioned in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. The idea of fasting sounds strange to us because in our culture, we're not much about self-denial. It's all about self-gratification. We live in a gratification-oriented culture. And to a lot of us who would say, I'd never smoke, I'd never chew, I'd never drink, we would think nothing about gluttony, for example. There's a story about D.L. Moody who came and met with Charles Spurgeon. Dwight L. Moody was the evangelist from Chicago, very famous back in the 1800s, and Charles Spurgeon was like this mega preacher in Victorian London. Moody always wanted to meet Spurgeon. So one day he actually took a trip, went over to England, and he met Charles Spurgeon. What he didn't know is that Spurgeon was fond of smoking cigars. And Moody, that was taboo. When Moody first met Spurgeon, Spurgeon came to the door with a big old stogie, took it out of his mouth, shook his hand, and Moody was stunned. And he said to Spurgeon, How can you, as a man of God, do that? Well, Dwight Moody was a rotund kind of a fella. uh, And uh, Spurgeon, as soon as Moody said, How can you, as a man of God, do that, pointed to Moody's belly and said, The same way that you, as a man of God, can do that. (laughs) The theme of this section and I think beginning all the way in verse 1 of chapter 6, is living without hypocrisy. It's genuine, authentic Christianity. Jesus is saying, pull off the masks and be real. And he nails 
religious pretenders who would vaunt themselves up in pride and arrogance and lack of integrity. It's as if Jesus is saying, if you're going to preach by the yard but live by the inch, you should be dealt with by the foot. And he does that in so many words, calling them hypocrites. Now, um, our text begins in uh, verse 16, as we've already read. But I'm going to take you back all the way to verse 3. And I want you to notice a few things as we begin. It brings up our first of four points regarding fasting. And that is fasting is to be expected naturally. Fasting is expected naturally. If you go back in verse 3, Jesus says, But when you do a charitable deed. And then in verse 5, And when you pray. Verse 6, But you, when you pray. And then verse 7, And when you pray. And then go all the way down now to verse 16. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. So just like giving of alms, doing charitable deeds, just like praying, fasting, it seems to be in that normal regiment of spirituality for the believer. He doesn't say if you do a charitable deed, if you pray, if you fast, but when you do a charitable deed, when you pray, and when you fast. That's important. Fasting isn't confined for some spiritual elite group who would live in a monastery, but it is for the normal believer. It's part of self-control, which is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and self-control. Now let's back up from this and just think for a moment of Fasting throughout history. A lot of different religious groups have practiced fasting. It goes all the way back to ancient times. Ancient pagan religions practiced fasting. For instance, you may not be aware that some of the ancient cultic religions, and this, by the way, filtered even into some groups in Judaism, believed that demons attached themselves to food, and if you ate the food, you could become possessed. So, during times of demonic oppression or depression, people would withhold, this is their superstition, food. They wouldn't eat. They'd fast because they didn't want any further demonic activity in their lives. The ancient Greeks used to fast when they would consult an oracle so they would get spiritual insight from the god or goddess that they were approaching. African shamans, North American Indians, Eastern yogis, all practice fasting as a way to communicate with the spiritual world, especially their dead relatives. Then among the Muslims, there's an entire month called Ramadan where fasting is the norm. It's practiced from sunrise to sunset. No food, no drink, um, no smoking, no bathing for a month. It's an interesting time. The Roman Catholic Church for years insisted that there should be two days of intensive fasting before Easter. That later on got expanded by the 10th century to 40 days of Lent before Easter. And by that 10th century, it was then enforced. And that's what we have to keep in mind. When we go to the Bible, fasting is never enforced. It's voluntary. It's something that is done as you desire to do it on your own, it's not obligatory. 
with one exception. And that is in the Old Testament, there was one day a year, the highest, holiest day of the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. On that day, there was a mandatory fast for all of the children of Israel. Because in Leviticus chapter 16, the Lord says, In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the seventh month, you shall afflict your souls. And they always believed that that meant you're to do without food, you're to fast during that period of time. That's why back in 1973, on October the 6th, it was Yom Kippur in Israel. It was a day when Israel's enemies knew that they would be vulnerable. There would be no work. There would be no communications, no radio, no television, no newspapers. People would be at home, and they would be fasting for a 24-hour period. And so at 2 p.m. on October the 6th, 1973, when the Israelis were 20 hours into their 24-hour fast, they were at their weakest, that's when Egypt and Syria attacked at that 1973 war. Now, in the Old Testament, people fasted, a number of them, Moses, Samuel, Hannah, David, Elijah, Isaiah, Nehemiah, and Daniel all practiced some sort of fast. In the New Testament, Anna practiced fasting, John the Baptist, Jesus, and members of the early church in Jerusalem and other places practiced it for specific reasons. It is a voluntary withholding of food for spiritual reasons. So that's a definition of fasting, a voluntary withholding of food for spiritual reasons. It's not a diet in Jesus' name. It's not, uh, you can lose weight and be blessed. (laughs) The idea is voluntary and it's for spiritual reasons. I want to give you some of those reasons. It's just sort of a quick biblical overview of why and how fasting was practiced in the Old and New Testament. Number one, during times of sorrow, sometimes fasting was practiced. David fasted when he heard the news that Saul and Jonathan, his son, were killed on Mount Gilboa. In deep grief, he fasted and proclaimed a fast. When David heard that Abner was killed by Joab... Though Abner was at one time an enemy, he fasted voluntarily. When Bathsheba's first child was sick and near death, David fasted. It's during those times, times of sorrow, you don't feel like eating a lot of the time. Times of sorrow. Number two, during times of danger. King Jehoshaphat proclaimed a national fast when they were outnumbered by their enemies, the Moabites. Before Esther approached the Persian king, King Ahasuerus, because of Haman and the evil plot to kill the Jews. The Jews in that Persian realm fasted for three days. As the exiles left Babylon, and they were on their way to Jerusalem, before they left, Ezra proclaimed a fast. It was a dangerous journey, he knew. And so they fasted as a nation. So times of sorrow, times of danger. Here's a third, during times of repentance. Sometimes repentance was accompanied by fasting, withholding of food from the body for spiritual reasons. Both Daniel and Ezra, when they found out the sins of their people, it weighed upon them. So they fasted and they prayed. My favorite story about this is Nineveh. 
you know the story. Jonah went to Nineveh and he uh, preached a message. No grace in it. It was all denunciatory. It was all judgment. He basically said, uh, in a few days, you're toast. That was his message. God's going to judge you. You're going to be wiped out. God bless you. He had done his duty and he left. But it so moved the Ninevites, the king of Nineveh repented and proclaimed national repentance. It says in that book, the king then said, let no one eat or drink anything, but be covered with sackcloth and let everyone turn from his evil way. It's, by the way, the greatest revival ever recorded in history was in Nineveh with the prophet Jonah. Here's a fourth reason it was practiced. Whenever there was an important task or ministry that the church was facing, it goes all the way back to the time of Jesus who fasted 40 days and 40 nights before he went into public ministry. Or Acts chapter 13. It was a, a new episode of church history. New commissionings as the apostles were going out. In Acts 13, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So this then is the purpose of fasting. I take the focus off me because that's where it is most of the time. And I put the focus on God and his will. It's the discipline of the body where I make my appetites my slave rather than my master. So often we're used to our bodily appetites telling us what to do. I want that now. Okay. And we go for it. But this is the discipline of the body where we make the appetite the slave rather than the master. Back in 1975, Stan Mooneyham was the president of World Vision and he and U.S. Senator Mark Hatfield got together and proposed that the United States of America during Thanksgiving week, the Monday of Thanksgiving week, at that time in 1973, I think it was November 24th, they proclaimed it as a national day of fasting and called upon Americans to experience hunger willingly so as to reevaluate their lifestyles. Now, that's fasting. It's to be expected naturally. But if you notice in the text, go back to it. Fasting can be practiced hypocritically. For Jesus said, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. And notice this. With a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces. That they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. It seems that hypocrites will go to great lengths in order to impress people. It's all about the appearance. It's all about the show. It's all about getting you to think that I'm more spiritual than I really am. And this has been a tendency with man from the very beginning. Even back in the Old Testament times, the children of Israel would practice fasting. And it wasn't sincere fasting. It was to impress people and to impress God. Isaiah chapter 58, I'll read it to you, not the whole chapter, a couple verses. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, in striking each other with fists. You can't fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. 
you get the drift of what God is saying? He's saying, I, I'm not as interested in your rituals as in your obedience. They were fasting. They were going through the motions. At the end of the day, they're beating each other up. And their hypocrisy is that they thought by fasting that their ritual could manipulate God so that they could get whatever they wanted. Well, let's move forward a little bit from the Old Testament now into the New Testament. By the time of the New Testament, generally among the Jews, there were two opposite extremes in how they viewed this activity of fasting. Number one, there was a group of people who thought fasting was absolutely morally wrong because they said God created food and we will stand in judgment before God for every good thing we did not eat. That would be a very popular philosophy today. It's like the Miss Piggy philosophy. Never eat more than you can lift, she used to say. So they saw indulgence as good. God gave us good things. If you fast, you're withholding something good that God would want to give. But then there was the opposite end of the spectrum. They didn't see fasting as wrong. They saw fasting as righteousness, meritorious, a way to gain favor with God and the applause of men. And that's what Jesus is referring to in these verses. Two days a week, these... uh, righteous ones, usually the Pharisees, they would fast Mondays and Thursdays. You might ask, why Mondays and Thursdays? Well, it could be that they just thought they were good days to fast for really no reason until you do a little bit of studying and you discover that the two busiest market days were Mondays and Thursdays. Biggest crowds were out going to the market. And these people would put on their fasting clothes Those were the old duds. They were rags. They were torn. And they would put on their fasting makeup. Dust, a pale kind of powder so that they looked gaunt and sickly. And people would walk by them and think, they're fasting. They're so spiritual. That's exactly what they wanted you to think. It was all about the show. They messed their hair up, put their makeup on, put on the act. Matthew Henry used to say, hypocrisy is to do the devil's work in God's uniform. That's what it was. It really had nothing to do with God, had nothing to do with their love for God. Their motive wasn't, this is for God. It was about them getting recognition, them being noticed. And here Jesus denounces that hypocrisy. And his denunciation of their hypocrisy reminds me of a plaque that still hangs in a cathedral in Lübeck, Germany, that reads this. Thus speaketh Christ our Lord to us. You call me master, but you obey me not. You call me light, but you see me not. You call me the way, but you walk me not. You call me life, but you live me not. You call me wise, and you follow me not. You call me fair, and you love me not. You call me rich, and you ask me not. You call me eternal, but you seek me not. And if I condemn thee, then blame me not. It was all about the show, all show and no go. Well, let's, let's continue in our text. Not only is fasting to be expected naturally, not only can fasting be practiced hypocritically, but to Jesus' point, fasting should be done joyfully. For he says in verse 16, Don't be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, verse 17, but you... When you fast, anoint your head 
wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place. See, they had a weird idea that to be holy was to be ugly. Uh, To be holy was to look miserable. They were grumps for God, if you know what I mean. Uh, The sadder you were, the darker outfit you wore, you had somehow an in with God. You know, you had to look sick and gnarly. Gnarliness is next to godliness, they thought. No, Jesus says, basically, get a life. Be real. Um, Put perfume on, cologne. Fix yourself up. Look good so that you don't appear to be a certain way because of what you're doing in your activity. You know what the gospel means? It means good news. That's how it ought to be lived. For too long, people have connected Christianity with something insipid and flavorless and hard and sad. And so people have looks on their faces like this and people go, oh, you must be a Christian. (laughs) Oliver Wendell Holmes used to say, I would have entered the ministry, but every clergyman I've ever met looks and acts so much like an undertaker. (laughs) Who wrote those rules? I love what one theologian, Helmut Thielicke, wrote. He said, should we not see that lines of laughter about the eyes are just as much marks of faith as lines of care and seriousness? Is it only earnestness that is baptized? Is laughter pagan? We have already allowed too much that is good to be lost to the church and cast many pearls before swine. A church is in a bad way when it banishes laughter from the sanctuary and leaves it to the cabaret, the nightclub, and the Toastmasters. I have honestly met people who speak in sepulchre tones. Hello, how are you? It's like there's a necktie twisted around their soul. Pharisees were like that. They thought you couldn't be spiritual unless you were uncomfortable. Irma Bombeck wrote in her column once that she went to church on a Sunday. And there sitting in the church service was a mom with her son and the little boy during the service, song service, looked back at all the people and smiled. Big, big smile, big joy. And it wasn't saying anything, just big smile. And uh, mom saw that and swatted him and said, uh, stop grinning, you're in church. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Stop grinning, you're in church. So he stopped it. And she said, that's better. Irma Bombeck then concluded, Some come to church looking like they just read the will of their rich aunt and learned that she'd just given everything to her pet hamster. (laughs) Listen, Christianity, including doing good deeds, almsgiving, doing a charitable deed, including prayer, including fasting, should be done with deliberate joy. Did you know that the early church people who saw them in Acts chapter 2 thought they were drunk? Did you know that uh, the first Franciscans were rebuffed because they laughed out loud in church? Did you know that some of the first Methodists were accused of worldliness because they took songs that were sung in the nightclub, the cabaret, and they brought them into the church and put Christian lyrics to them? They wanted to have fun. It's a time of joy. Hey, when you fast, when you give, when you pray, let it be done with joy. Fourth and final point to be made here is that fasting will be rewarded ultimately, and here's how. 
so that you do not, verse 18, appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. What's Jesus' point? Simply this, God notices authentic spirituality and will reward it lavishly. God notices authentic spirituality and he himself will reward it lavishly. Fasting is not to gain God's favor. It's not to twist God's arm, but he will reward. Which brings up the question, well, how does God reward fasting? Here's a few ways. Deeper intimacy with him. Knowing God's will. Clarity in difficult situations. New strategy for ministry like in Acts 13. And maybe that's a good way to close this morning, is let's just consider together some of the benefits of fasting. I know that for a lot of you, you probably never heard a sermon on fasting before, um, but it's here, it's in the text. Maybe you've not considered something that this would be a part of your life at all. And let me just say that there's different kinds of fasts. There's a fast that could be one meal, it could be uh, two meals, it could be an entire day, it could be... um, um, up to a week. Um, I heard about a guy who decided to fast 40 days like Jesus until he heard from God. Um, he heard from God eventually. God, I guess, said, come home because he died. So you got to be careful uh, and do it as you're led by the Spirit. And then also there's partial fasts. Um, um, a Daniel fast He ate vegetables and not the king's food, the rich meats. So there's all sorts of ways to approach it. But but let me give you the benefits. I'm going to give you five of them. Number one, fasting will teach us self-discipline. When we deny the body what it wants, it will cry out like a spoiled brat. I want that now. It's hard to practice self-denial and self-control, but it teaches us self-discipline. The body needs food, but the body can also get flabby. And we can get into a rut where instead of eating to live, we live to eat. Fasting will teach us self-discipline. Number two, it reminds us we can live without a lot of things. There's a lot of things in this life that we think are absolute necessities, and they're not. Even the metaphors that we use, the hyperbole, I'm starving to death. You probably just haven't eaten for an hour. That's all that means. And and when we fast, the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, will be very meaningful to us. It reminds us that we don't have to be at the mercy of our luxuries. Number three, fasting helps us appreciate God's gifts. You see, in a culture like ours, our appetites can get blunted. They can become dulled because of our abundance. And frankly, we become unthankful. I'll never forget a time where I was seeking the Lord, and it included fasting. This was many years ago. In fact, it was that episode that brought me from California out to New Mexico. I was fasting for three days at that time. It was out in Whitewater Canyon, out in the lower desert. And I remember after that, I stopped at Hadley's, and I got a date shake. Have you ever been to Hadley's? Date shakes are killer. Just a little tip there. Um, I've never had a more flavorful date shake in my life. After withholding food from my body for that long, that was like amazing. It was gourmet. And I was so thankful for that date shake. 
so thankful for the daily food that God gave me because after doing that for a period of time, it heightens that sense of thanksgiving. Number four, fasting helps us see the needs of others. When we refuse to put food in our bodies for a period of time, now we're getting in touch with millions of people who live that way every single day. And I would suggest that if you practice fasting to any degree, it might be that episode of fasting that prompts you to get involved in our Thursday food ministry, uh, maybe world missions in a whole new way. And number five, a benefit of fasting, is because fasting is so often accompanied with prayer, it will sharpen your prayer life. It'll take the edge of your prayer life and sharpen it, make it a keen edge and boost your prayer life. Jonathan Edwards is a name you probably heard of. He was a brilliant intellect in early America. He was a preacher in colonial New England. And um, though he's famous for that, uh, you may have even heard of his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards was a boring speaker. He had a monotone voice when he would speak very, very low, bad eyesight, and he humped over his page, and, and just with squinted eyes, he would read this thing. Yet his sermons had overwhelming impact. That one sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, historians tell us, was probably what sparked the great revival, the great awakening in America. From a human standpoint, it makes no sense at all. Here's this monotone guy, no gestures, just kind of reading every word of his text, but conviction so fell upon people that a great revival broke out. It doesn't make sense until you start reading about his preparation. John Chapman gives us the story. For three days, Edwards had not eaten a mouthful of food. For three nights, he had not closed his eyes in sleep. Over and over again, he was heard to pray, Oh, Lord, give me New England. Give me New England. When he arose from his knees and made his way to the pulpit that Sunday, he looked as if he had been gazing straight into the face of God. Even before he began to speak, tremendous conviction fell upon his audience. I wonder, I wonder what would happen if we just as a church decided, you know, I'm going to take one day this week and I'm not going to eat a meal. Not for a diet, but for spiritual reasons. Or I'm going, to, I'm going to fast for an entire day. And as a church, we prayed during this week, Oh God, give us Orange County. Oh God, give us Orange County. I just wonder what God might do. How about it? Let's kind of do that. Let's not kind of do it. Let's do that this week. And it's voluntary. I'm not going to tell you when or where or how or what restaurant to stay away from or whatever. Just as voluntarily the Lord leads, let's make that our prayer. God, give us Orange County. Bring revival. I love what one person said. He said, the pleasures of eating are fleeting. The pleasures of fasting are lasting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you give us so much. Your bounty, your kindness, your blessings, thank you. For us to give time or talents or treasure or to withhold a meal, 
compared to your sacrifice, compared to your love, is really nothing. It's inconsequential. But Lord, it is a discipline. It gets us in touch with those in need. It helps us focus on spiritual things. It teaches us not to treat our bodies as if they're the master, but the slave. So Lord, may we show ourselves to be yours in every single way. And I realize that for some, this is a whole new concept. But Lord, we're in it for the learning. We're following you because we are disciples, learners. And you, through your word, have taught us. And now teach us, Lord, what it is to naturally give, naturally pray, naturally fast. Show us what our part is to be, Lord. May it not be done out of guilt. May it not be done for any motive other than because you've led us into it. Thank you for your people, Lord. And it's our prayer collectively. Oh, God, give us Orange County. Pour out your spirit. Bring a new Jesus movement, a new revival. We ask it in the precious name of your son. Amen. Amen.